We are now four weeks, well, on the fourth week of our series about Elijah. And if you've caught any of this stuff, uh, you'll probably have known by now and see by now why we wanted to choose uh, this story. Uh, the story of Elijah features all the good bits from the Bible and none of the boring bits. There are no lists. There are no rules, there are no genealogies, there's just miracles and excitement every, uh, every step of the way. You've got Elijah, who so far has proclaimed, we only had three sermons, number more, but so far even up to this point, he's proclaimed a nationwide drought at his word. He's raised uh, a dead guy from the dead, as you raised a dead guy from the dead, you see what I mean. Um, he's even called down fire effectively from heaven, okay, turning, it seems, an entire nation uh, back to God, okay. That's just three sermons in, okay. This guy's uh, pretty special. And uh, like, like I say, you can see why. Even among the heroes of the Bible, Elijah stands out as, well. Elijah, he does the business, doesn't he? But the problem is, um, when you've got a character like this, there's a temptation for us to sort of stand back and look at Elijah, but he's so distant to us that we gawp at him with a kind of wow that you look at a genius and say, rather than a student to a teacher, if you see what I mean. There's a gulf between us and Elijah who seems to just be able to zap things into action left, right and centre. That means we think, well, we could never, ever be like Elijah. These stories, they're encouraging, they show what God can do. But wait a minute, this could never involve me. Now, if you've ever thought that, uh, it's helpful to reflect on something that James, the writer of the New Testament, wrote about Elijah hundreds of years later to speak into exactly that thought. And in James 5, verse 17, James says this. He says, Elijah was a human being even as we are. Might not sound overly profound, <laughs> but it is actually. Think about it. Uh, Elijah was a human being even as we are. Just take that in for a second. As we read these stories, you see the dead rays, fire from heaven, droughts proclaimed at a word. What James is saying is, this guy's a normal bloke. He's an ordinary person, just like you. And in that sense, when we look at Elijah, we should genuinely say, in a sense, we can follow in this guy's footsteps. As we read these stories, we're saying, well, how can we be like Elijah in our day and age? That's not something far, far away from us. No, that's something that's possible as we throw ourselves into the service of God. Let's be clear. For us, serving God might look very different to Elijah. It might not feature so many supernatural wonders as Elijah's ministry. Okay, that's possible. It might not be a kind of national public thing that everyone sees like Elijah. But we need to be assured of this. God can further his purposes through you and through me, just like he did with this mighty man of faith, Elijah. In your work, in your family, among your friends. Elijah was called to turn the people of God back to their God in his day and age. Well, he calls us to do exactly the same uh, thing. But how? How do we do that? How can we emulate someone who did so many great things? Or to put it a different way, what was Elijah's secret? What was the one thing driving everything else? Was it his incredible courage and boldness? I mean, this guy is courageous. I'll take you all on prophets of Baal, me against you lot. Should we be courageous like Elijah? Is that the key thing? Was it his compassion that we looked at a few weeks ago? Was it his miracles? Well, what is the thing? What's his secret? Well, according to James again, continuing the passage in the New Testament, 
Reflecting on the story of Elijah, James points out something else at the heart of all that Elijah did. And it's something that's definitely attainable for us. This is what James writes. I'll continue. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. What's stoking the engine of Elijah's faith, according to James? It's prayer. He prayed earnestly. As we look at Elijah's astounding exploits that swung God's people back to him, at least for a season anyway, in the story in 1 Kings, we see prayer at the center. And as we look to see similar advances uh, in our day and age, we'd be wise then to look at Elijah's life and particularly how he prayed and see if we can apply that into our lives. So with that said, let's turn back to 1 Kings. Let's pick up the story where we left it off because today we see the example in the life of Elijah where you get a a, a closer examination into his prayer life than you do, I think, at any other time in the story. It's 1 Kings 18. I'm going to read from verses 41 to 46. And this is from the New International Version translation. If you get a bit lost with different translations. Okay, but here we go. 1 Kings 18, 41 to 46. And Elijah said, actually, let's stop. I'm rushing ahead at a rate of knots. Where are we? Where have we come from? What's the context here? If you remember, Elijah starts, he introduces himself to Ahab. There's going to be a drought. There is a drought. He goes off to be fed by ravens in the desert. He goes off to Zarephath, to the widow's house. God calls him back to Ahab. And last time Jonathan spoke, pre-catalyst days, I know guys, some of you can't remember back that far, you know, but uh, Jonathan spoke the week before, it would have been two weeks before maybe for you guys, I don't know, um, about this uh, this kind of battle on Mount Carmel where he, he says, Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, if your God is Baal's God, get him to call fire from heaven. They do it, no fire, Elijah prays, fire comes. Okay, that's just happened. They are just, literally, the crowd is dispersing from that gathering. Okay, back to the story. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Okay, so as I said, beginning of chapter 17, the drought had begun. Elijah said, there's going to be a drought, okay? And here we have the end of the drought. And as James pointed out, the drought ends through Elijah's prayer. And uh, we see in this passage how he prayed for it. We see it in some detail, actually. And I want to pull out just four things about how Elijah prays. In James' passage, in James 5, it said, he prayed earnestly. I think we can have that as the heading. Pray earnestly. What what does that mean? Pray earnestly. Let's see four things that meant for Elijah and see how we can apply them to our own prayer lives. Okay. So the first thing uh, to look at, and this will be the longest of the four. How does Elijah pray? He prays on the back of God's promise. That's what the first thing we see is he prays on the back of God's promise. Okay. Now, in a sense... 
It's funny that James draws attention to Elijah's praying in this passage because from one angle, this whole thing that goes on here could be seen as being a little bit pointless. Okay, that sounds a bit odd. I'll I'll explain what I mean by that. But what I mean is this. He seems to be going through all this stuff to get it. Please rain, please rain. God, I'll kind of come seven times, bow down to the floor, all of this sort of stuff. The fact of the matter is, is God had already promised that it was going to rain. In, in Elijah 18, in 1 Kings 18, verse 1, basically he's in Zarephath with the widow, just raised the widow's son, and God comes to him, he says, now is the time, Elijah, go back. He says, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Okay, I will send rain. That's pretty cast iron, okay, that's reasonably black and white. Only condition, present yourself to Ahab. Well, he's done that. He's not just done that even. He's gone to Ahab. He's even declared war on the prophets of Baal, the feet of them all fire from heaven. He's gone over and beyond. If you do that, I will send the rain. I mean, if God's promised to do it, why does he bother praying at all? Why doesn't he go off and feast with Ahab? In a sense, you could say that would show more faith as he's there leaning back with another bit of chicken leg or something. He goes, don't worry, everything's fine. I trust him. He said it. I trust God. Surely, isn't it kind of slightly unbelieving to kind of pray when God's already said he'll do it? Isn't it kind of just saying, please, God, do what you said to do? God does what he says to do, surely. Now, I've laid out a position I don't believe, by the way, just there. But there's a certain logic to that position, definitely. The thing is, the Bible presents the exact opposite picture to what I've just said. In the Bible, we respond to God's promises how? By praying. That's how we respond. Actually, some of the most powerful prayers in the Bible are exactly upon this model, upon asking God to do what he'd already promised to do. Give you a couple of examples. In uh, Genesis chapter 32, you have probably the most physical representation in the Bible of earnest prayer. Okay? It's a fist fight between a guy called Jacob and a guy called God. Okay, wrestling with God. That's just the story. God comes down a person, an angel. At first, Jacob doesn't realize, lays his hands on him. There's this fight. And the picture there is of, of, of Jacob wrestling with God. It's been used down the ages for prayer because within the fight, Jacob calls out this. He says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Okay, incredible story, incredible picture of earnest prayer. Amazing thing about the story, though, is God had already promised him that he was going to bless him. I'll read you the passage. It was a couple of chapters before, Genesis 28, 13 to 14. God says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I mean, that's reasonably kind of wide-ranging blessing, I'd say. That covers it, really. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So what does Jacob do? He wrestles with God in prayer. Do what you said, Lord. Daniel, another great example. Daniel uh, chapter 9 starts this great thing. I love it when bits of the Bible reference other bits of the Bible. And Daniel's reading... Uh, reading uh, the prof- book of the prophet Isaiah, uh, sorry, Jeremiah, it says. Didn't, wouldn't have had the Old Testament like we, we had it, but he was reading the, the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. And presumably he came to 
Jeremiah uh, chapter 24 because it says in the passage he realizes Daniel who's in exile in Babylon the people of God have been exiled he gets a bit where Jeremiah had prophesied that the people of God would be exiled for 70 years and then the exile would finish okay it's there in, in Jeremiah 24 now what does he do then he kind of sees it and he, he looks at his calendar and he goes well okay 70 years has happened we've had the 70 years it's done what does he do? Does he run out in the streets and go, guys, great news. Hold on any second now. The exile's coming to an end. That's what God has said. 70 years and it'll be done. No, Daniel 9 verse 3. Next verse. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. God promises. What do we do? We sit back passively? No, we pray earnestly on the back of it. I could go to David. I could go to other heroes of the Bible and show exactly the same. You see, praying in God's promises is not a sign of bad memory or of unbelief. It's the model of biblical prayer. I know this is confusing, and I guess probably this is one of those things that we'll never be able to fully understand how this works. But I think we can get a handle on it somewhere. The great Puritan writer, Andrew Murray, put it like this. I found this really helpful. He's looking at this stuff, and he's thinking about it and trying to Work out, well, how does this work? And he said this, it's as though the promises are waiting for prayer for their fulfillment. It's as though the promises are waiting for prayer for their fulfillment. It's as if God said, I promised to do that, but what he, the clause that he misses out is, and for that to happen, it's going to take people to pray. That's going to have to happen. That needs to be in the mix. It's going to happen, but people will pray too. And those people who pray are going to be involved, participating in bringing about my promises to earth. It's as though the promises are waiting for prayer for their fulfillment. Now, we could ask all sorts of questions about this. You say, well, what happens if nobody prays then? We've got God in the right situation there then, haven't we? I mean, you could do that all day. I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's what we're meant to do. We're not meant to take bits like this and just sit around pondering the intricacies of God's sovereignty all day. No, we're meant to act. And actually, when you pray like this, I'm sure many of you would pray like this, you find out God's wisdom on the matter. Because actually, there's nothing like praying on the back of a promise. It's a wonderful thing. We all know prayer can be hard. We all know it can be tough. You're there talking to someone who you can't see. Sometimes feeling tired, sometimes feeling sleepy, distractions. But when you say, look, God, you've said this. Now, God, make it so. Make it happen, Lord. And really take hold of promises. We find all sorts of things happen. We find, <coughs> find the cough suddenly appearing in our throat. We find faith rising up in us. Have you ever had that before? You start, it's just like, God, oh, I just got to go for my prayers today. God, you said you'd do this. And you said you'd do this. I don't see this. God, come. Faith rises up in us. It strengthens us in our trust of God. So we pray like this. We get to live out the wonder of truly being in a relationship with a God who sees the beginning and the end simultaneously and pulls all that together and us taking our place in the middle of his purposes, not just watching, saying, oh God, that's nice what you're doing, but participating, plugging ourselves into the circuit. You said this, and I'm praying, and somehow I'm going to be involved in the fulfillment of your promise. It's an incredible way to pray. I think often we reduce prayer to simply getting stuff that we like off God. Now, just to say, that's fine. 
we are more than welcome to pray for things that we'd like to happen. Jesus said, give us today our daily bread. This is how you pray. Pray for the things you need, even for the things you want. We see that in the Bible all over the place. And you know what? When that happens, I don't know what you might be praying for. You might be praying for uh, your physical needs. You might be praying for your health. You might be praying for that job, that house, even that parking space. I don't know. But when God comes through often in those cases and he delivers, I think it's a bit like when, when you're little and you're with your mum or dad and you're going past a sweet shop and you say, hey mum, really like, you want to have a bag of sweets? All right, today son you can. Let's go and have sweets. And you go, thanks, great, fantastic. I feel it's a bit like that with prayers like that. Great. And I don't want to lessen in any way some of those concerns there. Some of those are big things for us. But when they're things that are just, they're, they're things on our agenda, they're our desires, sometimes it's like that. God just, he says, yeah, of course I will, because I love you. You're my, you're my child. Yeah, go, go for it. And we have that warm God, thank you. God's for me. So that's a good thing. But we've got to know this, that it's not just that God amazingly chooses to stoop down and wrap himself up in our little agendas, although he does. Now, God's got something much greater for us. As well as doing that, he wants to lift us up into his great agendas. That's what he wants to do through prayer. God wants to involve us in the flow of human history towards the glory of his Son. He wants to involve us in the unravelling of things towards the the final glorification of his people, towards the destruction of evil and the vindication of all that's what's right. He wants to wrap us up in that and actually give us a part to play in that whole process. That's what prayer is. That's what prayer can be for us. And to do it, we've got to know God's will. We've got to understand what God's doing and what he's promised to do. And actually in that area, the Holy Spirit can give us a sense in the moment of those sort of things. And so often we think, God said this to me, I've heard him say it. He said in that meeting where God spoke to us or personally to me, and that happens. And we, we, we do that, we weigh those things, but we, we do that. However, even though that's the case, we've got to go as our anchor right back to where God's spoken most firmly to us. And that's in God's word. I want to ask you, do you know God's will as revealed through his word? Does it live in you? Do you know what he's promised to us as his people? I'll give you a couple of things uh, just to kind of ground us in this. He promises all sorts of things to us in his word. How about, here's here's a couple to stoke our prayer. So some of these these will be very very, uh, familiar to us, but it's good to dwell on them. Well, this promise, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will build my church, promise, from the Son of God. Okay? That's a good one. I like that. About Matthew 13. It's more a story than a promise, but it contains a promise. Jesus said this. He said, what's the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows from the smallest of seeds to the biggest of trees. What's he saying? He's saying, from heaven's perspective, in the DNA of the kingdom is growth. That's what he's saying. And from the end of time, when we look back from new heavens and new earth, we'll say, oh yeah, of course, it grew and 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 it grew from the smallest to the biggest. That's in the kingdom. There's a promise there for us about kingdom activity. It might stall for a while, it might be tough going, but it grows. That's what it does. Matthew 24, 14, this is a good one as well. Jesus said this, and this gospel of the kingdom 
will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Gospel will be preached to all nations, then Jesus returns. Soak them in. This is what God is up to in our times. Your parking space, I'm sure, is really important to you. It's important to me. I always pray for parking spaces, particularly working in the jewellery quarter, okay? It's, it's important to me. That's important. But no, there's something more important. God's bringing the gospel to all nations and building his church forever. He wants to wrap us up in that. That's what he's about. Do you want to get involved? Do you want to stand on the sidelines and watch? Or do you want to participate? What about in our lives? God's doing all sorts of things in our lives. But again, he wants to tell us some crucial things he's doing. Some of the headlines in our lives. And he's made some promises over us as Christians in this area. Romans six fourteen. It's a verse I come to again and again. We need to know this verse. We need to pray into this verse. It says this, For sin shall no longer be your master. Sin shall no longer be your master. But this temptation, I've fallen for it again. I'm stuck. Look, I'm just addicted to this way of life, this way of thinking. I'm just having to manage it. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Sin shall no longer be your master. What do we do? We pray. God, you said this. I want freedom. Holy Spirit, come. I need you. It's a headline over your life if you're a believer. Very famous one. Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We look to the future and we think, well, everything's going wrong. It's just going to get worse and worse. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. Things are going towards my harm. What do we do? We say, no. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Promise. So what do we do? We pray, God, bring good in this situation. Even this awful situation I'm in. Even these things that have happened to me, that just bad thing after bad thing, God can bring good out of them. I'm sorry, that's, that's wrong. Actually, it's not God can. God promises to bring good out of them. So we pray into them and we battle into them in that way. We take these promises right back to God and we pray earnestly into them. It's a practice that Elijah knew very well and it underpinned a life that saw God move in unprecedented ways. Listen, if you don't want to stand by and watch history pass you by but participate in the revealing of God's purposes in your lifetime, I would encourage you to do exactly the same. Learn how to pray earnestly. But how? Well, let's return to the story. First of all, Elijah prays on the back of God's promises. Secondly, he prays by withdrawing from the crowd. We've kind of gone bigger pictures to start, but let's hone it down to practical uh, for three shorter points. Okay, Elijah prayed by withdrawing from the crowd. Picture the scene. Prophets of Baal have been smote, as the word goes. Uh, fire has come from heaven. Everyone's like, this is this is running wild, basically. Elijah's the hero. He was the only one on God's side at the beginning. He's now, everyone is on God's side, okay? Everyone's coming up to him, high fives, selfies, the whole lot. He is the center of attention, okay? So what does he do? Which says clearly in the passage we looked at, he climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, okay? What does that mean? He withdraws. That's what he does. He withdraws from the crowd, Quite clearly, he's not on his own because his servant comes in. We see that in the story. But this is a symbol of withdrawing from the throng, from the busyness, from the noise, because he knows he needs to get hold of God. Just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. I don't know if it rings any bells with you already, but you read through the Gospels, and Jesus often going off on his own. Sometimes a whole night to pray. 
Luke notes, Luke's someone who probably never met Jesus, but he researched, he says he researched, we, we know about Luke, don't we? Uh, <laughs> we've studied him for a number of years, but um, he researched about, uh, carefully got the testimonies of different people. I imagine him talking to pe- person after person, and then he put this verse in. From all those testimonies, he said, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, Luke 5.16. Jesus often withdrew. It was his, it was his regular practice. And of course, he taught his followers to do exactly the same. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus says, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Might seem very prescriptive to you that. Oh, into my room, okay, which one's my room? Is that my room? That's family room? That's, that, it doesn't mean exactly the room, but it is specifying, I think, how, the, well, the type of place we should pray. I think the features of uh, go into your room and close the door is what Jesus is getting at is we, we need somewhere private. We need somewhere we're unlikely to be interrupted. Somewhere the phone's off. For me, at different times, actually, the, the, the closed room has been all sorts of different places. As a child uh, and a student, um, it was my bedroom. It was always my bedroom, where I'd pray. As a young married person, it was the living room. Well, actually, it's seemingly completely opposite to what Jesus said. It was the park at the back of my house. And we lived in Wheelie Castle. It was kind of hill at the back. That would be my place. I'd go. I knew I wouldn't be interrupted. I knew no one would come to me. I could go and pray. I could do business with God there. Now, at those times of my life, I'd just wake up and pray. It was morning, straight first thing in the morning was a good time for me. I'd have some time there if I was disciplined with where I set my alarm. And that was, I'm not enforcing that on anyone. That's partly because of how I work physiologically. I assume many of you would be slightly different to that, but that's for me how that worked. But as my, as my lifestyle changed, I had to find a different place. So I became a teacher and I found that as you woke up, there were things that you kind of had to do straight away and getting to school early and stuff. And so my place changed for a number of years to my car. So a 45-minute journey in, I knew that it was the close of the door of the car and there I go. And it wasn't turn on the stereo and listen to Radio 1 or put my iPod on. It wasn't let my mind wander and be distracted. No, it's this is where I do business with God. It wasn't perfect because apparently you have to concentrate when you drive. <laughs> now, I'm a man, I don't do multitasking, but you know, there's needs must in these cases, okay? Then Isaiah comes along, first child, another change happens. I had a responsibility to take my son out in early morning, so alongside the car, walking down the canal used to be my place. Okay? I changed how I kind of did business with God, because I like to read my Bible, but whenever I stopped to read my Bible with a buggy, he'd cry. It was really awkward, so I had to memorize big patches of the Bible to go along. Changed how I did things. But I knew I had to change because I needed a plan because I needed a place where I could engage with God. The moment, it's back to my living room again. It's gone full circle. Who knows what it will be next year. Now, I'm not just doing that for some form of nostalgia through my prayer life. I'm doing it to ask you this question. At this point in your life, where's your place? Where is it now? It might not be what it was two years ago might read books to say, you have to pray at this time in this way. I forget that. Where's your place now? What works for you now? If it's somewhere uninterrupted and private, it's good. I mean, lots of people kind of say, oh, you know what, that's kind of old school. I just catch up with God as I go along. We've lived busy lives in the 21st century, don't we? Just kind of shoot up a prayer every now and again, thank you, Lord, do this. Yeah, well, there's a biblical basis for that. Paul said, pray in the Spirit at all times. 
David, he could say, you are always before me, Lord. It's important. But you know what? When we look at the Bible, we see those who prayed in ways that really released God's power into their lives and the lives around them. They needed something more than that. They needed Mount Carmel. Or they needed the closed room. Where's your place? So Elijah prayed on the back of God's promises. He prayed by withdrawing from the crowd. Thirdly, he prayed instead of feasting. See a contrast in this passage between Ahab, the wicked king, and Elijah. Elijah is effectively on Mount Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. He's won this great victory. And at the end of a great victory, you have a feast. And he's entitled to a feast. What does he do? He says to Ahab, you go and feast, Ahab. What does he do? He goes and prays. Ahab feasts, Elijah prays. And this reminds us of a practice that is probably at best hinted at here. It's not saying this specifically about what Elijah did, but there's definitely a hint. But it's a practice that's encouraged very clearly throughout the rest of Scripture, and that is the practice of fasting. Now, what's fasting? Fasting is going without something that you enjoy for a period of time. Okay, that's basic uh, kind of definition. In the Bible, whenever fasting is talked about, it's always talked about in terms of food, and sometimes water as well, but consumables in a literal sense. Okay. Now, it's true to say, and I've got to, got to say this in this, Christians are never commanded to fast in the Bible. For our Muslim friends, uh, this is not the case. Tomorrow will be the start of Ramadan tomorrow, uh, which means hours of daylight, no food, no drink at all at this time of year. Uh, that, is, uh, that is an ask. It shows great willpower uh, for those guys, you know, and we support our friends in that. Please don't offer them cakes or stuff like that, you know, for Ramadan, don't you? That's not very kind. Uh, but in Islam, that's a, literally a pillar of their religion. Every Muslim is expected to fast in that way. We don't have that as Christians. In fact, there's no command at all for us to fast. But strangely, it's not commanded, but it's just assumed in the Bible. Jesus just assumes that we will fast. So in Matthew 6, he just says to his disciples, when you fast, do this. When you fast. He just, oh, we're past that. We don't need to do that. Fasting, everyone knows fasting is good. When you fast. Just assumed in the Bible that we build that, weave that into our general day-to-day lives. And again, I've got to say, from my experience, I've found this an incredibly helpful practice. Now, some people uh, would fast uh, lots of different things, social media or TV or computers or something like that. Probably those things are always good to fast, uh, probably more than most of us do them. I know more than I do them, I know that. And that can be helpful, you know. Some people fast different types of food that they particularly like, and that's absolutely fine. Um, But I guess I think there's something special. The Bible talks about fasting food and water. And I think there is something special in my experience about fasting from things, going without things that your body actually needs rather than just things that you quite like. Okay? I think there's something about that. When I'm fasting, my tummy starts rumbling. <laughs> you start feeling this thing. And what your body is saying to you is, look, there's something that I need that you are not giving me here. Come and help. Give me food. Okay? At that moment, I come back to God and go, and God, I need you more. God, I need you to answer this prayer more. There's something powerful about that stuff. I'd encourage you to build it into your life. I know some of you might well have uh, kind of health things that would mean you didn't do that. Obviously, if that's the case, you need to be sensible. But for the rest of us, you know what? I think it's a helpful thing to do. But it's important to notice with fasting, though, that fasting is not just going without something. Notice that with the story. Elijah doesn't just say, I'm not going to feast, and just wander around the hills, gazing at the Mediterranean from Mount Carmel. No, what does he do? Well, as we said, he goes and prays, doesn't he? 
It's not just going without, it's replacing it with something. There would be some dietary value, I'm told, in going a day without food, okay? You, by the end of the day, you'd feel willpower, max, I'm better than I thought on that stuff. You just go without food, that does that. But that's not what fasting is in the Bible. It's replacing that for praying. So most obvious way to do this, uh, recommend if you're fasting a day, uh, pray when you would be eating. That's an easy way to do it. Breakfast, lunch, tea. Uh, otherwise, uh, you could just say, and sometimes that doesn't work out, so I say, look, I'm just going to extend my prayer time a bit in the morning, put aside some time in the evening to pray too. But I'm going to seek God today. I'm not just going without. Again, I know some people who would fast regularly, once a month, once a week. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us that stuff. I'm just talking from my experience here, but when I would fast, I would fast when I see a need for it, a, a desperate need. If there's a desperate need and I want to lay hold of God for it, I fast. If something has gone badly. There is a crisis somewhere with my family, and it's someone in the church, someone who means a lot to me, someone in the world, I fast. If I've got a responsibility that I know, if I do this and God doesn't help, disaster ensues. That happens, I fast. It's just kind of, that's what happens. Sometimes if I feel a bit distant from God, I feel God hasn't interacted with me in a way that I can understand recently. I feel I'm just going through the motions a little bit. That's a big problem for me. What do I do? I fast. For me, it's usually just one day at a time. Sometimes I stretch to two, once or twice. I know some people like going for longer. You know, I think, well, you're being very specific here, Johnny, with all these details. Why is that? Well, the reason is this. I'm not just saying, look, I do it like this. There's other ways to do it. I'm just saying, practically, for this, for many people, practically, this is an issue. Fasting, I feel, is something through Scripture. I feel it's through Scripture. It's assumed that it will enhance our prayer life. Actually, when we fast, in my experience, it's a great blessing. Do I always get what I pray for when I fast? No, definitely don't. But i tell you what, I can't remember a time when I finished a day of fasting... I've kind of gone downstairs for my shreddies in the morning. Shreddies really good. Called breakfast for a reason. Okay, you discover that after a day of fasting. And I've I've not can't think of a time I thought, well, that was a waste of time yesterday. Wish I'd had more food. No, every time more focus, more faith, and God speaks to me. He wraps me up in his eternal purposes. I'd encourage it, it's a good thing. It worked, it seemed, uh, in the Bible, and it works for us. So Elijah prayed rather than feasting and fourth and finally Elijah persisted in prayer as well Elijah prayed on the back of promises he uh, prayed instead of feasting what was my second one I'm sure it was in here somewhere he prayed by withdrawing from the crowd and finally he persisted in prayer I mean we've got the promise and he goes out of his way doesn't he, he withdraws he neglects the feast that you know, that for me, that would have been a tempting offer of the feast. He neglects that. He does all this bowing down and stuff like that. He's doing a good job. You'd have thought that's enough. And so he goes away and he asks his servant, and now this, the rain's coming, isn't it? And his servant, this is blunt. I think this is pretty cruel, okay? What he says is he goes, just to make sure I get the quote right here, like Elijah's doing a good job here. He sends the servant away. What's going on? He says, there is nothing there. Nothing I mean, surely he could have made something up. Oh, I feel a bit of dew, actually, or something. Oh, it's the spray of the sea. Anything. There is nothing there. What does Elijah do? Again, he goes and prays. Again, he goes and prays. Again, seven times he goes and prays. Now, is it just the same as what Jesus encouraged his followers? Again, if you remember. 
parallels between Jesus and Elijah are massive. Jesus told a story known as the parable of the persistent widow. But this old lady who uh, needed justice against an adversary, it says. Okay? And so she goes and finds this judge. And the judge isn't a very nice chap, but he does have power to fix the problem. And so she goes and basically just bashes on his door. That's how I imagine the story. And keeps going, give me justice against my adversary. Give me justice against my adversary. And basically, it says, this judge doesn't really care about the lady. Doesn't really care at all. Doesn't really care about God either. He's a corrupt guy. But basically, to stop her endless nagging, he gives in. Johnny Mellor paraphrase, okay? But I think that's basically the story goes. Now, as stories go and as uh, role models go, the nagging old widow doesn't do it for me, okay? I, you know what? I find that picture there a bit like, oh, I wouldn't want to be that, would I? But then Jesus says, Jesus says at the beginning of the story, just make it clear what he's saying. Luke 18, verse 1, preface to that story, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. God is giving us permission to nag him, okay? He's giving us permission to bother him, to keep nagging him. He's not saying, oh, not again. He's not the unjust judge. That's the point of that story. He's just, he's righteous. And that judge would have been like, this is, I'm fed up with this. God's not fed up with that. He calls us back again and again and again. And the prophets in the Old Testament, God says to his people, give me no rest until I make Jerusalem the praise of the whole earth. Don't worry. God's not in the middle of a nap. Okay? You don't need to knock on his door. Is he busy doing his house? No. Nag him. Bother him. Persist in prayer. Now, Again, with this, there are times when this is tricky. There are times, I don't know if you found them, when you pray for something, and then you get a sense, look, I need to leave that now. I need to leave that with God. Any more praying that I do here on this topic is just worrying out loud, really. So I'm going to leave this one to God. And if you ever feel like that, that's, that's fine. Jesus did it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? I don't want to go to the cross. Don't want to go to the cross. Don't want to go to the cross. I'll leave it with you, Father. Your will, not mine, be done. Paul, in the case of his infamous thorn, he prayed and then he says, no, no, then God said, no, enough. My grace is sufficient for you. And we know times like that in our prayer lives. However, just to be clear on this, when it comes to praying in the promises of God, this is never the case. So, you know, you've never prayed it out. Now, to keep on praying and never give up, that's what that that parable said, go back again and again and again. We pray for things like God's church to be blessed, to grow both in size but also in righteousness and boldness and joy. We pray for things like Jesus' reputation to be enhanced amongst people. We pray for things like more people to become Christians, for our city to be represented significantly in the great crowd around the throne on the final day. We pray for countries where the gospel once took root, but now are barren wastelands of Christianity, like Turkey, and like Beirut, and like Jordan. No, no, we pray for those things. We always pray. We don't give up. We persist. And when we look out, and we, we send the, the metaphorical servant out, and he goes, well, how's it going? How's the prayers going? There is nothing. <laughs> Do we go, oh. That's it. I'll leave it with you, God. I'll put it in you. I'm, I'm peacefully leaving it. No, we go back again and again and again. We persist in praying for these things. And you know what? Even if we don't have a specific promise, 
we can still pray in line with God's general promises. It helps us. The promises of God shape our prayers always. And we still pray persistently. Let's hone this right down. Does the Bible promise me that the church in Birmingham will thrive in the 21st century? Yeah? Anyone give me a verse on that, I'd be really happy, actually. I don't think it does. Not in any way. There's no mention of Birmingham in the Bible. But you know what? I know this. I know that God will build his church. So I pray and I pray and I pray that that will be the case here. And if God in his wisdom decides to leave Birmingham as the spiritual wasteland that it is today, so be it. That's his call. But heaven forbid that it should happen as a result of our prayerlessness. We come back to him again and again and again. Does God promise to bless Church Central forever and ever until Jesus returns? I don't, I don't have a verse on that one. wish I did. It could be quite handy. But he doesn't. Most churches die at some point. don't know if you ever spotted that. Not helpful to dwell on all the time, but you know, every now and again, probably worth thinking about. But I know this. I know the kingdom's like a mustard seed. That growth is in the DNA of what God's doing. And so what I do is I pray and I pray and I pray that as we are a kingdom people, we see this feature always in our church, both in quantity, size, but even more in quality of our lives, expressing love for others and love for God. And you know what? If God chooses to humble us or to prune us or to disperse us or to use somebody else, completely in his court but we make sure that it could never be said of us that we haven't stepped into what God's got for us because we didn't keep on praying. That's a call for us. So the Lord said, do you want to watch God's purposes happen from the stands, applaud one day, or do you want to participate in the outworking of his purposes in our generation? Do you want to follow in Elijah's footsteps? I recommend that you learn to pray like this mighty hero of faith. Know the promises of God. Get them deep in your heart. Set aside a time and a place to go. Fast when necessary and be ready to persevere. And then pray that just as God used Elijah to turn around a nation and advance God's kingdom in his day, that he'd use us to do the same.